Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. Manny and Sarah and their family are, I think, doing a, a camping weekend here before school starts, so that they're not with us this morning. I also think a lot of Matt and Jewel and their family, uh, yeah, throughout the days. I think there's a good possibility that Matt might be moved out of the hospital into rehab here in the next day or two. I think they're waiting for a certain thing to, to occur before they move him out, but uh, hopefully that'll happen soon. I'm sure they'll continue appreciating our prayers. <clears throat> Thank you, Benji, for that uh, devotional, especially the story there, the moving story about um, the church group visiting uh, the leprosy um, community or hospital. I read, a, I read a book some years ago about leprosy and one of the one of the significant, uh, among other things, about leprosy is that you don't feel pain, especially on the ends of your fingers and toes and your extremities. And uh, this, this book I read um, said that many lepers would, they would be doing things and their, the only reason they knew they were abusing their body was because they, they would start bleeding. They wouldn't have any nerves, they wouldn't have any feeling. And the book went on to, uh, uh, remind us that there's actually a blessing in pain. And um, we often don't think of pain as something good. Um, <laughs> and I remembered my, one of my wife's nephews. He had gone to the dentist and uh, he had a good dose of Novocaine and so he came home and he told his siblings they can pinch him, they can do anything they want to to his face because he can't feel it. So they took the liberty to do that. Well, his pain came later, but uh, you know, we don't usually think of difficulty and pain as a good thing. But God wants to use those things for good. So I deviated just a bit from our study on double words in the scriptures. I think two weeks ago, around two weeks ago, I was reading through Jeremiah, reading this passage during my personal devotions. And I read this passage here in Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, verse 13, uh, particularly arresting my attention. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now I've been pondering these words Ever, well, I think it feels like ever since I, I read this text, asking myself some questions. So, in fact, I wasn't planning to preach from this text. I was planning to preach from somewhere else, you know, double words. But God seemed to say, you know, there's probably something here for that I want you to learn, impress upon me a reality that just might exist in your life. 
And I found myself asking, so why, why was it, why is it that anyone would forsake a fountain of cool, clear, refreshing water, bypass it, ignore it, instead dig a hole in the ground and build a cistern? One that will be broken, can't hold water. Why would someone do this? Cliff led us in singing that um, song. I think it's taken out of the gospel. Well, I forget which passage it is, which, or which chapter it is, but the woman who went to the well for water. Like the woman at the well who was seeking for something that could satisfy. That song um, portrays what Jeremiah was seeing in his day. Is it portraying my life, your life? God calls it evils. Forsaken me the fountain of living water. Hooed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Why, why would anyone do this? What is in man to do something this foolish? You imagine a very thirsty person in a parched land, ignoring a bubbling spring of cool water only to start hacking out a hole in the ground, hauling water there for his sustenance. Now, I guess if you build a cistern, you could, there, there's probably appropriate times to build a cistern. But if you did know that there's a fresh spring available and you deliberately turned your back toward the spring and built a cistern, I think we'd agree that it's the epitome of foolishness. Such were the people of God when Jeremiah penned these words. And such are too many people today who once drank of this fountain. Many who do in fact know the source of life, have tasted, have drank, know that there is life in Jesus. Knowing that following him and doing what he, said, what, doing what he says leads to abundant life, but they deliberately turn from that source dig a hole in the ground, and somehow think they're going to find life, purpose, and meaning. 
Why would people do this? We still have the expression today in our common English language when we hear about some unfounded scheme or some uh, unworkable idea, something that's stupid and sure to fail. We often hear people, we can still hear people to say, well, that just won't hold water. It's exactly what Jeremiah was saying. A fountain of living water is a perpetual spring that never ceases to flow. An unending supply of refreshing, nourishing water. A cistern is uh, simply a receptacle for holding water. Cisterns are always inferior to a perpetual spring. Given a choice of the two, it's a no-brainer. A cistern depends on a supply of water. You, uh, if you want to fill your cistern, uh, you, you need water from another source. You get it out of your, your uh, roof gutter and maybe direct it to the cistern, or you haul it from another source. But a spring is, a, is living water that is continuous. It's not dependent on another source. Also, the waters in the cistern can be contaminated or polluted. The spring, on the other hand, is pure. A continuous flow of water washes the pollutants downstream, away from its source. The cistern itself can be damaged and cause water to escape, as it was in these cisterns that Jeremiah was prophesying. It's broken cisterns that can hold no water. Being damaged or broken is not so concerning when you're talking about the spring of living water because, because the supply is sustained and plenteous. Again, why would anyone do this? God paints this picture in words to show his people how utterly foolish we are when we turn from him. The surrounding heathen nations at least could be pitied and at least maybe somewhat understood that they would turn to idols. They were ignorantly, they were ignorantly following lifeless gods that couldn't meet their spiritual thirst. But unlike Judah, Judah knew better. Judah should have known better. Israel should have known better, did know better. So the, 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 God says something here in verse 10 and 11. So unlike these pagan nations, Judah wasn't loyal to their God. God rebukes his own people for doing something that even the pagan nations around them wouldn't do. Let's read verse 10 and 11 again. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see, and send on to Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? 
but my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. God points out that the heathen nations were loyal to gods that are yet no God, but my people who once knew me, my people who once experienced my wonders, had supernatural care as they were going through the wilderness, supernatural deliverances from things such as Egypt. They have deliberately turned away from what they knew was the source. Why would people do this? Verse 12, it says here, the heavens were called to be appalled and shudder with great horror at such foolish, such stupidity, such stupidity and such evil. You know, there's, there's some really uh, beautiful uh, expressions in the scriptures. There's, um, there's glorious claims that, that we uh, claim for ourselves, promise, wondrous promises, verses that give us hope, purpose, verses that uh, give us words of life. There's also some very sad statements in the scriptures, and this is one of them. there's some heartbreaking realities recorded for us. And I, today's text just documents some of those words. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living water. To who for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In this text, God points out his people's guiltiness of two major sins or categories of sins. Maybe, maybe not all that different from many who forsake God today. Forsake God and what he offers to us. Substituting, attempting to substitute his provisions with another. These two evils God's people committed illustrate for us two categories of sin, sins of omission and sins of commission. Now, sins of omission are activities or are decisions wherein one omits or leaves out doing what God commanded, omission. Paul told the church in Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, I don't know if I have this on the slide. Oh, yeah, I do. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know God, but that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They know God. They know what he wants. They know what he asks for. But they omit obey, obeying him. Sins of omission. The people in Jeremiah chapter 2 ignored the living fountain, built themselves cisterns, somehow thinking it was going to give them good water. It didn't. God clearly told them through Moses, ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. 
that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. So God points out the reality for Judah. They had forsaken the fountain of living water. They had omitted, omitted obedience to the word of God, to the, yeah, to the will of God, thus becoming guilty of sins of omission. Sins of commission are, are activities or actions wherein one disobeys God by doing what God had commanded them not to do. The very first sin committed by both man and woman was also a sin of commission. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So we know that Adam and Eve ate anyway in direct disobedience to God. They committed a sin of commission. They had done that which God had clearly forbidden. You know, as Jeremiah gives this word picture, cisterns were, of course, pools of containers of some kind that had the purpose of holding water. Here, Jeremiah uh, figuratively uses cisterns in reference to the false gods and the false doctrines and practices of which Judah had become partakers and promoters in. They did what God had forbidden. The end result of sin, no matter if it's sins of commission or sins of omission, is separation from God. And God told them that in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. With this particular sin, or sins which Judah was guilty of, they had turned away from that which was extremely profitable. A fountain of living water. How can, how can water ever get better than this? But they went to a cistern, which at best would have water that was still and not moving, but in this case, it was even worse. The cistern was broken. It would not hold water. Again, we say, what foolishness. I remind us again this morning, I think we know this, but I remind us that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is recorded and preserved as examples and ensamples for the New Testament believer. Examples and ensamples. Certainly we learn other truths from the Old Testament also, such as creation, and we see the prophecies leading up to Jesus. Um, we have the origin of marriage, and, and the list can go on and on. But we have God telling us in the New Testament, he is warning us of what happened to his people when they turned away from him in the Old Testament. And what will happen to us if we do the same? 
Let's read a couple of these New Testament verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Talking about those in the Old Covenant. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. To the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now I remind us again that God saw these as two evils. 1 Corinthians 10, just a few verses later, verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Examples and ensamples written for our admonition. You know, obeying God is so crucial for us. And I know, and you know, it's one thing to obey God because we know we need to do it or we should do it. It's really another thing to obey God because we actually want to. We actually enjoy drinking from his spring. We actually have desire to do so because we love and appreciate the gift of sustainable, refreshing living water. Are you living for Jesus this morning because, well, just because it's a fire escape? Is that, is that really why you believe what you believe and do what you do? Or is obeying him something you want to do because you actually believe it's the best place to be? Romans 1 verse 16 and 7. I really wanted the first part of this verse, but I'm just going to copy all of it. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For I'm not ashamed to be drinking out of this fountain, to be identifying with the people of God. You, are you, do you ever find yourself a little bit ashamed to be a follower of Jesus? I think it's safe to say that God's people here in this text really didn't want to be identified as the people of God. Oh, they were so attracted to the nations around them what their life and culture looked like. They wanted a king instead of these prophets. I mean, that, I mean, who has prophets? They wanted to fit in with, with what the others thought was cool. But God had, God knew what he was doing. You know, I'll just be frank, I, I don't really see it that much different from too many of us today. And I, I again, I ask, why? Why would we bypass the fountain of living water for a broken sister? 
Why would anyone be ashamed to clearly identify with that big God back in Israel that could do all kinds of things for his people? Why would anyone ignore a fountain of living water and instead drink scum from the cistern? You know, as I've as I been thinking about this the last couple weeks, and I, I kept asking myself, so why would you do that? I, I, just, I just haven't been able to come up with a very adequate answer. I, I don't know why people, I don't know why we would do this. You know, it talks about, if you look in the text in chapter 2, you know, I guess you could, you could blame the false teachers. It talks about the priest said not where is the Lord, so the priests weren't doing their job. I guess you could blame the priests. Uh, talks about pastors in that same verse. Pastors that handle the law. They didn't know me or they transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. I guess you can blame it on your leaders. I, I guess that's part of the answer. Could be part of the answer. I guess... Um, Temporal possessions and cares maybe can be blamed. Get so caught up in what we think is necessary in life. I guess uh, forgetting about God. You know, not taking enough of time to read the Word of God, spend time with His people. I guess forgetting could be blamed. But again, even if you're going to blame them, it just doesn't justify the stupidity of doing it. Because we know better. Israel knew better. Any present day departure from truth, from devotion, from righteousness, is parallel. of that of hewing and drinking from a broken sister. With this in mind, I have a list of questions for us to consider in the next 10 minutes or five minutes. And I call to, I call to us, I call us to ask these questions both individually and collectively. We believe we have a direct relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as a person, as an individual. We also believe that what my, how my brother lives is important to me, is, is necessary. So I ask us to consider these individually and collectively as we test our hearts before our God. Now, not all these questions are original with me. And as I attempted to honestly answer them, I, I'll admit I'm challenged. Some of them are obviously more relevant depending on where we are in life, depending on what part of the sojourn we're in. How we answer these questions, I believe, are indicative of where we are presently drinking, which fountain we're drinking from. First one. Is our attitude towards scripture changing?
or do we continue to accept it as the authoritative, authoritative and complete guide to practice and teaching? At our men's meeting coming up in September, as a leadership, we've talked about asking ourselves, so why do we have the reluctance among us of practicing the Holy Kiss? Is our attitude towards scripture changing? Or do we continue to accept it as the authoritative and complete guide to practice and teaching. Number two, are our inclinations oriented toward innovation and novelty or toward the simplicity and power of New Testament worship and teaching? Are cultural changes impacting our views of morality and righteousness. I believe we would agree that culture is speeding toward our, our society, our culture around us is speeding toward paganism. Are we also? I, I clearly remember my father um, out on the picnic table. This is when? I was just a, a little guy. We were sitting out at the picnic table with his, with his uh, feed salesman. And his feed salesman had um, recently gone through a divorce. And I, I still remember how the culture felt about divorce 45, 50 years ago. Are cultural changes impacting our views of morality and righteousness? Do we look for excuses to indulge our desires? Or are we careful to consider God's call to righteousness, propriety, and shamefacedness? What is present day shamefacedness anyway? As we examine our hearts, does our first love remain? Are we zealous for good works? Is our dress modest? Are we sober? Are we patient? Are we meek? Are we persistent in prayer? Do we study and meditate upon God's word regularly? Are we guilty of holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality? You know, 
I think it's safe to say that our natural bent is toward, you know, I like, I prefer some people in my camp. Others can find someone else to camp with. Is that really what God is calling us to? Is there a spirit of strife that exists in our fellowship? Or are we united in the same mind and in the same judgment? Do we really care so much about what God says? And living that out in brotherhood. Are we as fathers truly bringing up our children in the training and admonition of the Lord? I, I just pray and bless you young fathers and mothers who are serious about this. Your time and doing the most here is really, really short. And the last one is our first allegiance to the kingdom of God. These questions I found very sobering. And I think, I know they demand an answer from me. And the list of questions is certainly not exhaustive. Maybe there are some others that are even more important. But I do encourage us to take, at least take one of these and answer it. Think about it as you prepare for the communion table coming up in a few weeks. Think about it as you prepare for our preparatory service. We're going to plan to pass the mic around for each of us to give testimony. I encourage us to challenge ourselves. I encourage us to challenge each other. Are we drinking from the right fountain? What do our lives give evidence of where we're drinking? Are we intentionally or maybe even unconsciously ignoring what God offers us at his fountain? Is it possibly true about us as it was for those Jeremiah was prophesying to? Digging out a cistern, hoping to be satisfied with something much lesser. When indeed it's water that's going to make you spiritually sick. In conclusion, as I understand God's word and the text, Palestine had three sources of water. They had, number one, refreshing running water flowing from a spring or fountain, like, uh, like Jesus or like Jeremiah, like God pointed out to us. They also had groundwater, much like well water. And thirdly, runoff water, which was collected in a cistern. You know, the, the cisterns in their day were probably made out of some kind of limestone, uh, maybe plastered to prevent a leakage. But uh, I remember building a cistern for my neighbor when he built his house, and he built it out of cement block. I never went in to look what it's like after he's been living there for probably 20 years. I never went to see if he actually uses it or what the water's like in his basement. He put it in his, in his cellar. Cisterns not only collect water, but they also contain silt, 
mosquito larvae, and all kinds of yuck. God is showing, God is telling us that not only had Israel traded the best water for the worst, but their cistern is broken. Its water had all leaked out, and the only thing that remained was sludge. Why? Can you answer the why? Have we abandoned God's instruction to us for what is easy and acceptable in society? Living and thinking in such a way that indicates our standards come from the world rather than from the scriptures? Is that, is that us? Are we forfeiting the fresh, pure mountain of, fountain of living water for broken cisterns? Cisterns that are void of what we really want. Are we really okay drinking muddy sludge with bugs and other yuck? And in turn, offer it to our children. Offer it to our neighbors. John Allen talked about one of his neighbors in Sunday school class. Are you okay offering this kind of water for your neighbor? Offering it to Coachville. Offering it to a world that is literally thirsting in death. The consequences of turning away from God are just as serious and as sure as they were a couple thousand years ago when Jeremiah penned these words. Why wouldn't a person drink out of the fountain? Why not avoid all the struggle and the desperation for good water? Why not drink forever at the living fountain? I'm again just going to post those up there. I know that uh, the font's pretty small, but maybe you want to look at them or consider them some more. After prayer and after time of uh, testimony, if you have some, I'd like for Cliff to again lead us in that course. Like the woman at the well. Let's kneel for prayer.